to Hear the Word of God, the online and broadcast teaching ministry of the Rev. Eric Alexander. Well now, at the beginning of Isaiah 44, we are again at the start of another of Isaiah's sermons. I suppose that's how one would describe them. I was suggesting to you last week that each time you get that new beginning, which is marked by the six words, this is what the Lord says, chapter 44, verse 2, chapter 44, verse 6, and also in verse 24 at the beginning. This is what the Lord says. And this is the whole character, of course, of Isaiah's ministry. His preaching is the very word of God. This is what the Lord says. God has spoken. And uh, Isaiah has been already in chapter 43 using the same formula. The beginning of chapter 43, now this is what the Lord says. Verse 14, this is what the Lord says, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. And uh, there is a similarity, you may notice, between the way chapter 44 begins and the way chapter 43 uh, begins also. There is the same background, for example. At the end of chapter 42, uh, there is a message of judgment that God is bringing upon his people. Um, in chapter 42, for example, verse 24, who handed Jacob over to become loot and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned? And so on. Uh, then in chapter 43 at the end, you find the same thing. He says, um, verse 27, Your first father sinned, your spokesman rebelled against me, so I will disgrace the dignitaries of your temple, and I will consign Jacob to destruction and Israel to, sought to scorn. So there is the same background to chapter 44 as to chapter 43, and it's the background of God's promised judgment. But then there is the same but now. You notice how chapter 43 begins, but now this is what the Lord says. Chapter 44, but now listen, O Jacob, my servant, this is what the Lord says. And that but now is the same kind of message that you get in the middle of the epistle to the Ephesians where God is describing the hopeless state of man by nature and then he says, but now God in his infinite mercy has come in his Son and raised you into newness of life. So there is the same word of hope at the beginning of chapter 44 of God's grace and mercy. And again, there is the same citing of God's creative powers as the one who formed Israel and who is now going to exercise his creative power in salvation. Chapter 43 and verse 2, uh, verse 1 rather, he says, Now this is what the Lord says, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel. And again you find the same thing, chapter 44, verse 2. This is what the Lord says. He who made you, who formed you in the womb. 
Now, there is a, a tremendous importance attached to all this, you see, because Isaiah is addressing the people of Israel as they are around him in his own day, but he is looking forward to the day when God's judgment will be brought upon them and they will be in the land of Babylon. And Isaiah says, this word of God will be fulfilled. When God is speaking about judgment, he is not speaking idly. We have found again and again that what he is saying to them is that the living God means what he says. His judgment is his strange work. It is in mercy that God delights, not in judgment. But when his people persist in refusing his voice, God will do what he has said. But judgment is neither his first choice, nor is it his last word for his own people. And so he says, God is going to come, and he is going to bring his grace and blessing in the person of a servant Savior, foreshadowed in Cyrus, whom God is going to send to deliver them out of the land of Egypt, fulfilled in the person of that suffering servant described supremely in chapter 53. But you will notice the significant thing both at the beginning of 43 and of 44 that the God who comes to them as Redeemer is the God who is the creator of the ends of the earth. And this is where the Bible holds together what we frequently separate from each other. And that is the doctrine of God as creator with the doctrine of God as redeemer and savior. We sometimes actually move into the realm where we divide the God who is creator from the God who is redeemer, imagining that he's almost a different person. That the God who is creator appears in the Old Testament in all his severity and distance. And the God who is redeemer comes in Jesus Christ and he is rather a different being. Now, of course, if we had read John's Gospel chapter 1, we would have been cured of that heresy. Because at the very beginning of this gospel of redeeming grace, John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Without Him was not anything made that was made. So it is the redeeming God who is the Creator God. And it is the Creator God who is coming as the Redeemer. Now, there is a special sense in which Isaiah emphasizes this at the beginning of chapter 44. Did you notice in... Uh, Verse 2, he says, This is what the Lord says, He who made you, who formed you in the womb. That is the God who before your birth has been active on your behalf and is the one who comes to redeem you. Now it's very interesting that just as God's you try and grasp this. Just as God's creative work begins before birth, so the Bible teaches us that his redeeming work 
begins before birth. Because do you remember John the Baptist? Who was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. Now that's a glorious thing. It is no matter what form of baptism you believe in. It is a glorious encouragement to see the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God who covenants with us and with our children from before the days that we were born. Now in creation and in redemption, he is active at both of these times, do you see? And it's a glorious and wonderful thing to grasp the significance of that. Now, whereas in chapter 43, the result of God's salvation was protection for his people, he says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not overflow you. You can go through fire and flames and you will not be burned. Here, in chapter 44, the result of God's salvation is the propagation of all kinds of life. Notice how he begins to develop it. He says, Because I am the God who made you, there is no need to be afraid, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. Even although God's people were in the midst of days of discipline and suffering, he says, Do not be afraid. Because I am the Lord who has made you and formed you and I will help you. Now, as he moves in saving power amongst his people, this is what is going to happen. Verse 3, he is going to produce life in abundance. I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. And the interpretation of that immediately follows. Of course, the illustration of God's bringing life where there has been barrenness is the experience of the wilderness being able to rejoice and blossom as the rose and the barren place becoming a fruitful field. But he says supremely what I am talking about in the place where I want to bring life is in the hearts of my people, so I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Notice how the same figure of speech follows. They will spring up like grass in a meadow, like poplar trees by flowing streams. And there is this wonderful picture of God allowing the streams of his grace to come. Of course, the first great example of the fulfillment of that that you can think of is on the day of Pentecost, isn't it? When uh, Peter says, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, who prophesies very similarly, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh, your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams, and so on. There is going to be what the New Testament calls times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. 
Now, that's what God's people experienced, you see, when the fulfillment of what Isaiah is going to refer to at the very end of this chapter, the people of God coming back to Jerusalem, Jerusalem being rebuilt, the temple being reestablished again, there was to be an outpouring of God's grace. And this is the symbol of it, if you like. Uh, I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. Now, I tell you something that's really interesting. If you read the history of revivals, one of the commonest verses that people turn to who know their Old Testament is that verse. You find Jonathan Edwards when he is going to describe in Northampton, New England, what has happened in uh, the church of God there when revival began to break out. He said it was a fulfillment of the prophecy. I will pour water out on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground where the people of God had been conscious of their own souls being parched and dry, you know, and experiencing what it was to be like one of these rivers that you can see in tropical countries which are dried out and cracked and caked. And then when the rains come, oh, the glory that comes to that barren parched land, and you begin to see life breaking through what appeared to be barren clay. Well, now God says, when I pour out my spirit upon my people, that is what is going to happen. And it's not surprising that you find that. In, in Lewis, in the days when Duncan Campbell saw the spirit of God come down upon that island in the late 40s and early 50s, that's where he pointed God's people to. He said, this is God pouring water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. And it is, of course, precisely this, and that is something that we need to cry to God for in our own generation. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They will spring up like grass in a meadow, like poplar trees by flowing streams. Now, you will notice one of the great evidences of that spiritual life, and it is identification. You notice that? First of all, an identification with the Lord. Now that was one of the great problems of God's people which brought them under discipline. They were ashamed to be identified with the Lord. Their lives scarcely would have identified them with the Lord. Because of course what was happening was that they were so indistinguishable from the godless round about them. And now he says, when the Spirit is poured out upon them, and when the barren land becomes streams of living water, what is going to happen? One will say, I belong to the Lord. Now that's a great thing. That's a sign of the Spirit of God poured out and the rivers of water flowing. They will say gladly, 
I belong to the Lord. Notice the second identification, not only with the Lord, but with his people. Another will call himself by the name of Jacob. Now, some people think that this is a prophecy of the gathering in of the Gentiles. Personally, I'm not at all sure that it's that. I rather think that what this is, is simply the Lord's people being restored to him again. And whereas previously they had been ashamed to say, I am the Lord's, now they are saying, I belong to the Lord. Another will call himself by the name of Jacob. Still another, do you notice, will write on his hand the Lord's and will take the name of Israel. Now, that writing on the hand can mean many things. Those of you who know the book of Leviticus very well, which I'm sure is all of you, but if you know the book of Leviticus well, you will know that one of the strange things about Leviticus in chapter 19 is that it forbids people to do this kind of thing. Did you ever know that the Bible forbade people to get tattooed? Did you? Well, just look over to Leviticus chapter 19, verse 28. And those of you who have got tattoos, you'd better hide them at the moment uh, because um, this might be slightly embarrassing. Leviticus 19.28 All tattooed hands and pockets of this place. Do not cut your bodies for the dead or put tattoo marks on yourselves. I am the Lord. Now, the reason for that, of course, as you can guess, was not some silly prohibition. It was that all tattoo marks were the proclamation that somebody belonged to an idol. It was a pagan idea, and it was really a separation of themselves from paganism, you know. But here, what Isaiah is saying is, in the day when the Spirit of God flows amongst my people, they will so much want to be known as the Lord's that they will write it upon their hand. And I think that is what he is speaking about. I ought to tell you that other people think that he is really referring to the phylactery, you know, the little thing that the Pharisees uh, made broad. You make broad your phylacteries and they put a roll with the writing of uh, part of Scripture on their foreheads and some on their arms. And some people think this is the tying of a phylactery on their hands. I've got a phylactery at home. I don't... Uh, use it, but uh, inside it there is this little rolled up piece of paper in which it says in Hebrew, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God, and so on. And that came from a Jewish uh, home where it was put up on the lintel of the door. But uh, I don't really think that is what Isaiah is speaking about. I think much more simply he is saying here is something that was once a pagan practice, but in the simple way somebody is going to write on his hand. You can imagine how this would happen on the back of his hand. The Lord's, and he would stretch out his hand to take hold of something and say, what's that? 
I'm the Lord, he would say. But it's an evidence of God's people being concerned to declare themselves, to identify themselves, and not to hide themselves. I am the Lord's because that's the most precious thing in the whole world to them. Now from verse 6 to verse 20, God asserts not only his saving power, but his uniqueness over against all rivals. And one of the things that, as you will know, God's people were sent into exile for was worshipping idols. And uh, they had turned from the Lord. They had turned their backs on the living God. And they worshipped idols. Now from verse 6 to verse 20, uh, Isaiah pours scorn on the idols that people worshipped. Now, there is little doubt that he is also addressing uh, his people in Babylon. This is what the Lord says, because in Babylon, many of them learned to worship idols, Babylonian gods and so on. But uh, this particular passage from verse 6 to verse 20 is one of Isaiah's several challenges to idols. And you notice how it begins, uh, apart from me, the end of verse 6, there is no God. And first of all, he introduces this challenge to idols by making three statements about himself, about the Lord, in relation to history. Just look carefully at this with me, because it's the important introduction. This is what the Lord says, Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty. So he is above history. That's the great characteristic of the living God of the Bible. He sits above history. Of course he takes part in history. He orders it, but he sits above it, and that's the vital thing. He is the King, the Lord Almighty. There is no other power in the universe that can stand before him. So he is the Lord who is above history. Now, do you notice he goes on to say that he is also the Lord who is before all history. I am the first, and I am the last. He is beyond all history. But God's relation to history, as we read not only here, but in the last book of the Bible, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, he is before history begins, and he is beyond history after it finishes. He is the last. Now, one of the things that that means, of course, is that it is God, the sovereign Lord who is above history, who has the first word in history and the last word in history. Now, that makes a tremendous difference in the way you view history, even the history that's being worked out day by day in your newspaper. Our God is the God who sits above history as the living God enthroned on the throne of the universe. 
And he is the almighty one who is above all history. So there is nothing that takes place that is outwith of his sovereign control. But he is also the Lord who is before all history. That is, he is the Lord who before history began had planned and purposed for his people before you were born, you see. He says, I had a purpose and a plan for you. And he is the Lord who is beyond history. That is, the last word in history is not going to lie with any of God's creatures. It's going to lie with God himself. He is the one who will wind up the affairs of the world. It is he who will determine when the curtain will be brought down upon the stage of human history. He is the one who is beyond it. When time shall be no more, our God will still reign over history. Then from verse 7, he challenges his rivals and points out how ludicrous they are. Who then is like me? That's the challenge, is it? Beginning of verse 7. Let him proclaim it. And the very first challenge, of course, is to predict the future. Now, here we come to the crux of the problem that many people have with the prophecy of Isaiah and with prophecy in general. That is, they say, now this bit couldn't possibly have been written by Isaiah because it refers to the future, you see. And that's their problem with prophecy generally. Where prophecy speaks to the present, many modern scholars have no problem. But where prophecy speaks into the future, they have great problems. But do you notice that this is precisely the point that Isaiah raises to say that God is the unique God and differs from idols because, he says, the challenge is this. Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people and what is yet to come. Yes, let him foretell what will come. Now, uh, that is precisely, of course, what only... God can do, but God can and does do it. And here we come to the critical matter for many people about prophecy. All prophecy is not foretelling the future. Much of it is commenting on the present. But there is an element in prophecy which is foretelling the future, and God says it is one of the distinctive things about his character. Now, thereafter, he goes on to challenge the idols in different ways. He encourages his people not to tremble or be afraid, because he alone is God. Is there any God beside me? Verse 8. No, there is no other rock I know, not one. And then he goes on to deride from verse 9 right through to verse 20. He goes on to deride the idols and their pathetic weakness basically on this principle. 
that they are created by man in his own image rather than being gods who created man in his image. So do you see how what man has done is to turn the whole thing upside down? Whereas the living God is the one who created man in his image. Idols are created by man in their image. And he turns to those who make them. Uh, they are, first of all, um, the blacksmiths. Uh, verse 12. Then the carpenters. Verse 13. And he's sorest on the carpenters. Some commentators have suggested the one thing you can be sure about Isaiah was that he wasn't a carpenter because he really gives the carpenters a rough time. And uh, the reason he's doing it, you notice, is this. Um, he is saying, look at the bit um, about the carpenter. He measures, verse 13, with a line and makes an outline with a marker. He roughs it out with chisels and marks it with compasses. He shapes it in the form of man. That's the idol maker making God in his own image. Of man in all his glory. A bit of Isaiah's sarcasm again, you know. Where did he get that glory from, he is saying? Well, he got it from his creator, you silly boy, he says. But here are you trying to make an idol in the form of man in his glory. And then you bow down and worship it. He cut down cedars, or perhaps took a cypress or oak, verse 14, and let it grow among the trees of the forest, or planted a pine in the rain, made it grow. And then he says, once he has made his god out of the cedar, he needs firewood. So he makes the rest of the timber into firewood, and bakes his bread there, and roasts his meat on it and warms himself on it. That's his central heating at the end of verse 16. He also warms himself and says, I am warm, I see the fire. From the rest, he makes a god his idol. He bows down to it and worships it. He prays it and says, save me, for you are my god. Isn't it pathetic, Isaiah is saying. Can you imagine anybody doing that? And you and I might well say, well, of course you can't not in the 20th century. You might have managed to think about it in the 8th century B.C. or even the 6th, but not in the 20th. But you know, an idol is quite simply what somebody lives for. That's what an idol is. And serves. And worships, therefore. You know how Jesus... Uh, said in the end of the Sermon on the Mount, you cannot serve God and mammon. Now there's an interesting uh, history of that word mammon. Originally it appears mammon. We all talk about mammon. You know, everybody worshipping mammon today, but mammon originally was a word for to entrust something to somebody. See the idea that somebody would get something and then trust it to their friend and say, look after that for me. It's not yours, it's mine, but you just look after it. And then later the word came to mean to trust in. 
So that the thing somebody was given as a custody from somebody else, they began to trust in it and to rely upon it. And then the word got a capital M. And it became a god that people worshipped. So you see the progress from what was entrusted to someone to look after for someone else. They began to trust in it and then they began to worship it and depend upon it. And the history of the word is often the history of people. Isn't it? What we receive to be entrusted to us by God, we can be deluded into trusting in it. And then we find ourselves living for it. And an idol is just what you live for. We were created and formed to live for God. But the tragedy of so much contemporary life as was true at the beginning of the epistle to the Romans when Paul was alive, he said they worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Now, that's what idol worship is. So idol worship isn't an ancient habit of the 6th or 8th century B.C., it's a very contemporary thing because we can so easily be seduced into living for things that are rather like the things the carpenter made with his own hands. Now, Isaiah turns with some relief, I have little doubt, in verse 21 to God's response to all of this and this is the sheer mystery what would you think God's response would be to his people even when he had chastised them and disciplined them and taken them into Babylon even there they hadn't learned the lesson and so many of them ran after idols you remember how Daniel and his friends stood out in Babylon and wouldn't touch the meat from the king's table, which is just a symbol of their standing apart from the life of Babylon. Others, however, were swept in to the Babylonian culture. And Isaiah's addressing these people. And he says, here is how God responds. Verse 21, remember these things. Now, when you read this, you just think of what a savior our God is. What a redeemer we have in Jesus Christ, who is the fulfillment of all this. Remember these things, O Jacob, for you are my servant, O Israel. I have made you, you are my servant. They had forgotten that, you see. They had actually forgotten that the Lord made them and owned them, and they were his servants, and he had called them to that. But then he says at the end of verse 21, O Israel, I will not forget you. Now, in some ways, these are amongst the most amazing words in the Bible. You've forgotten all about me, says God. You've forgotten what I told you. You've forgotten every lesson you ever learned. But I will not forget you. 
how God hangs on to his people. Isn't that just wonderful? I have swept away your offenses like a cloud, your sins like the morning mist. And then he appeals to them, return to me, for I have redeemed you. Now all these pictures of God drawing his people out of Egypt and drawing them out of Babylon and calling to them, return to me. And in every generation and in every situation in our own lives when we've wandered away from him, what he is saying is, return to me, for I have redeemed you. And then he calls on the mountains and the hills to rejoice because the Lord has redeemed Jacob. And then the postscript at the very end, God declares himself to be the God who, having made all things, foils the signs of false prophets, but fulfills the word of his faithful prophets. And notice what these are right at the very end of the chapter. He says, of Cyrus. He is my shepherd, and he will accomplish all that I please. The amazing thing is, you see, that God is able even to go into the pagan world as he did in using Cyrus of Persia to fulfill his purposes. That's why it should never surprise you that God goes into the pagan world of communist Eastern Europe and takes hold of even people like Mr. Gorbachev and says, now I have something for you to do on behalf of my people. You mustn't be surprised that God lays hold of people like that. And he will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt. And of the temple, let its foundations be laid. Now come over some centuries from Isaiah's day. You remember a man who made the journey back in the days after Cyrus? A man who made the journey back from Babylon to Jerusalem? His name was Nehemiah. And Nehemiah went and he looked at the ruins of Jerusalem and he wept and wept and wept over it. And then God said to him, rebuild it rebuild it. And he was just fulfilling that prophecy, you see. Get to the temple, he said, lay the foundations again, rebuild it. And God rebuilt a place for his glory. It is a very wonderful thing that the temple of God, which is the believer as well as his people, the temple of God can sometimes lie in ruins. But my dear brothers and sisters in Christ, what our God says is, my purpose is to rebuild it and to fashion it again as a place for my glory. And since he did it, at a national level in the days of Nehemiah. Can he not do it at an individual level in 1990? 
Corsica. What a God and what a Savior. Let's pray together. Our blessed Lord, we bow in wonder before you. All your works are marvelous and greatly to be praised. And we bless you that you are the God who indwells us by your Holy Spirit. And we are encouraged to come to you. And we beseech you in your great mercy. Pour out the living waters upon us in these days and grant that there may be raised up again a temple in which your glory may dwell. Hear us and bless us and be with us this night for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You're listening to Hear the Word of God with the Rev. Eric Alexander, a minister in the Church of Scotland for over 50 years. To access more Bible teaching from Rev. Alexander, visit hearthewordofgod.org, where your generous contribution will help us sustain and grow this ministry. That's hearthewordofgod.org. You could choose instead to mail a check to this address, 600 Eden Road, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 17601, or call 1-800-488-1888. This program is a presentation of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. I'm Mark Daniels. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next time for Eric Alexander and Hear the Word of God.